Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom is a Cure, where we aim to show that whatever the societal ailment, freedom is always a cure. I'm Paul Dragu, the Communications Director for the John Birch Society. Thank you for tuning in. So if you're like most people, you're probably wondering, when do we begin building back? And when does that better part kick in? That sure would be nice. In fact, the opposite has been happening. We've been destroying what took generations to build. And for the average family, things are worse, much worse. A large reason for that has to do with this pesky rise in prices that our commander-in-chief told us last year was going to be temporary. Remember that? General prices have spiked to a 40-year high, at least, making everything we need and want more expensive. Food, heating, travel, fuel, housing, everything has become much more expensive. Over the summer, gas prices went on a record-breaking binge. I'm sure we can all remember that. There's nothing better about what is happening. And like most of the drivel coming out of Washington, D.C., the opposite of what they say is actually happening. Their mantra should be making everything worse. A large reason why everything is worse is inflation. But it's likely not the inflation that most people think of when they hear the term. Inflation is not a general rise in prices. Inflation is correctly defined as government collaborating with the banking system to create a new money that's not backed by precious metals. Rising prices is a symptom of inflation. It is not inflation itself. Inflation is the unrestrained creation of fiat money, paper money. Inflation is more insidious than the general public realizes. It is a result of a money system that was intentionally corrupted to serve the interests of the international oligarch inside class while destroying the middle class. In the latest collector's edition bookazine from the New American Magazine called The Great Reset, executive senior editor Steve Bonta wrote this about inflation in his story titled Destroying the Money. Without inflation, the massive deficits and debt now run up by the federal government, as well as the lavish programs they fund, would be impossible. Inflation, therefore, is not only responsible for the systemic impoverishment of the American people via the destruction of the dollar's purchasing power, it is also responsible for the maintenance of modern big government in all its repressive sprawl. Steve was on the show a couple episodes back discussing the truth about inflation, and I'm fortunate to have him back on today to focus on solutions. But before we dive in, please remember to follow our social media and podcast channels and like and share this episode. Like with most truth tellers, Big Tech has restricted our message heavily, and we need your help in spreading the word. So today we're going to continue our conversation about money. Steve, thank you for coming back. Well, thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, we had a great time last time. Uh, got a lot of good feedback, and I think uh, we achieved. Uh, well, I just want to say, I, I'm not sure that talking about inflation constitutes a great time, but it's uh, always interesting and stimulating. All right, all right. Well, that's <laughs> fair enough. Um, the reason we're doing this is because we finished the episode and we realized that we had barely, if touched on solutions. But before we go into that and spend the majority of the time in that, can you summarize uh, the reason for inflation? Obviously, there's a lot there, but can you do it maybe in 10 minutes? Why are we, uh, why are we experiencing this, uh, this rise in prices? Well, I think you did an admirable job of that in the introduction, actually. I mean, inflation, the rise of pri in prices is the general rise in prices across more or less all products, consumer products and assets and everything else is not inflation per se. It is the result of inflation. Mm -hmm. And inflation properly de uh, defined, as Hans Senholtz made, made particularly clear in his wonderful little book, 
the age of inflation, is, is best defined as the creation of fiat money. Okay? Because as it turns out, um, although in theory you can also contract the money supply and create deflation through the fiat money, the production, the printing of money, putting it crudely. And nowadays, it's not done so much by printing presses as, as via computer entries. But, but the point is that the practical reality usually means that inflation is going to result in, in rising prices because that's the way that it benefits the political classes and everyone else who, who's kind of, you know, benefits from the, the, the few who benefit as against yeah. the many who, who suffer as a yeah. result. So You did a great job know. explaining last episode of how the, they benefit because they're at the beginning there, at the, the beginning of the spigot by the time, you know. But, and and one thing we forgot to mention, I, I think we should have mentioned before, and I'll mention it now, is that this isn't happening by accident. It isn't, although it's true that the majority perhaps of, of people and perhaps even a plurality of economists don't really clearly understand what inflation is. Uh, there are some people who have always understood it, and among those who understood it are those who deliberately use it for malign purposes. This is why the creation of a central bank with a monopoly on the money supply is right. one of the 10 planks of communism in Marx's Communist Manifesto. So Karl Marx understood very well the power of a you know, modern fiat banking system centered on a central bank with the, with the exclusive power to create money right. at whim, how, 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 how effective that would be in leveling, meaning bringing everyone down to the level of poverty, which is what socialists really desire, and obviously communists as well. So um, this is the fact that that was one of the central aims of, of communism way back when the manifesto was first published in, in, in the mid-19th century. And starting in the 20th century, uh, the United States, of course, acquired the Federal Reserve, put, created the Federal Reserve shortly before World War I. And, um, and other central banks that already existed, like the Bank of England and the Bank of Sweden and so forth, that had been around for a while in Europe, began moving over to a more or less pure fiat money system. And that, 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 that transition was more or less complete by the 1930s after World War I. So we, had a, we indeed entered a world envisioned by Karl Marx and his epigones, which was a world dominated by central banks with exclusive monopolistic power over the production of money, meaning that no one else, no competing private interests were allowed to issue money anymore. And, and interestingly, that has not always been the case. In the United States, up until the early 20th century, there were private, you know, banks issued their own bank notes. This was quite mm -hmm. a common practice. Um, and so th there wasn't, in theory, any restriction on that. Right. Uh, today, of course, if anyone tries to mint their own, you know, silver coins, there was a guy who tried doing that about 20 years ago, and he got hunted down by the feds, and all of his silver was confiscated and so forth. You are not allowed to create money in any form that competes with what the Federal Reserve does. Now, isn't there, and I know we touched on this last time too, but I think, if I remember correctly, but the reason, one of the reasons that the, the central bank, the Federal Reserve was created was to supposedly prevent um, crashes, booms, and, you know, these cycles, these up and downs, uh, these economic cycles that apparently had been very problematic beforehand, including, I believe, some at the later there in the 19th century. Um, was that not what one of the points? Well, has, has that worked? Well, first of all, it hasn't worked. But, but, <laughs> but historically speaking, the pretext, the official pretext for the yes. creation of the Federal Reserve System was the great, uh, the Panic of 1907. Yeah. All right. Which, okay. which started with the failure of, of several you know, prominent banks in New York and quickly mm -hmm. the contagion spread across all of 
the major cities in the United States and even overseas to Europe and so forth, and it resulted in a considerable contraction of wealth. And at at that time, at least so goes the narrative, uh, several big money men, including uh, J.P. Morgan at the time, who was one of the wealthiest people in the United States, literally stepped in and loaned money to the the city of New York and and to this kind of thing to keep the country more or less solvent. So... um, but this is because, you know, already prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve, there was an inherent flaw in the banking system, which allowed banks individually mm. to inflate the money supply by pyramiding loans on top of a relatively limited supply of assets. This is the magic yeah. of so-called fractional reserve banking. And this is a flaw inherent in banking the banking system that is only amplified by the creation of these central banks, okay, which basically takes this this power to create money out of nothing or to pyramid it on on top of a limited amount of assets and concentrates it in a, in a central banking system, okay. But there have been banks, such as the Bank of Amsterdam, for a couple hundred years, and there have been other examples of banks that practiced full reserve banking, meaning if you deposited money with them, it was there. They didn't simply take it and loan it out. Well, how did they make any so money forth. then? Well, they they charge money for um, you know basically for the they, services for the services for, for the for the protection, and then the Bank of Amsterdam was extraordinarily prosperous and stable for several hundred years, and that's the reason that it was actually Holland, uh, the Netherlands, and not England that really pretty much created mm-hmm. most of the modern financial instruments that we now take for granted because their banking system was so stable. Uh, you know that the Amsterdam-centered banking system of the of the, of the uh, Dutch Republic attracted funds literally from all over the civilized world. Yeah, uh, for a period of several hundred years. Now, eventually, the Bank of Amsterdam decided to listen to the siren song of fractional reserve banking, and by the early 1800s, there were just another bank that that played this this shell game. Yeah. Okay. So central banking only compounded the problem because then it, then it said, well, not only are we going to allow the banking, the banks, the individual banks in the banking system, this power to create money uh, based on assets that they don't have, we're going to formalize it by law and we're going to cent- you know, base it on a, a, a central bank, in, in the case of the United States, the Federal Reserve, which despite its name is actually our central bank, equivalent to the European Central Bank or the Bank of England or something like that, okay? Um, and and by so doing, we will allow an unprecedented concentration of the moneyed interests. Yeah. And so they can more or less inflate at will and in concert. And this can even be done internationally. There's, a, there's an institution in Switzerland that's been around since the 1930s called the, uh, the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, mm-hmm. which was founded before the modern, you know, post-World War II, you know, Bretton Woods system, everything else. And that allows banks to more or less, you know, central bankers from different countries to get together and to plan in secret, uh, you know, how they're going to be inflating their, you know, how, how fast they're going to create money so that the currency exchange rates remain more or less stable. Right, right. And, and part of the the results of all that has been, we touched on that, for instance, inf- this rise in prices is, is a, a form of theft, and you explain that, as well as that it gives them the power to to fund the welfare state, which, you know, further empowers uh, their their stronghold on, on our lives, as well as uh, perpetuate these wars, these conflicts, because, you know, we don't see it in our paychecks, right? So that makes a big difference, I'd imagine, as opposed to Congress having to get actual permission like they should. Um, and then you went in and when, uh, we did touch on the fact that you, you, you mentioned why gold, for instance, was a good uh, example of what money should look like. You know, scarcity, it's compact, uh, it's portable, it's rare enough and whatnot. Now, 
What about the fact that gold, if we were to go now kind of transition to the solutions part, one of the things, uh, say, one of the uh, problems that some have with gold, despite the fact that nobody wants, at least no reasonable person, most likely listening to this, wants centralized money. But the problem with gold supposedly is that, well, it would just continue to perpetuate. Who has gold? It's already the people who who are more likely already rich or in power or whatever. Wouldn't this uh, shifting to or going to gold somehow continue to perpetuate the current uh, power system? Well, perhaps to a degree. I mean, I mean, there won't be. There's there's no way to completely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if again, if 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 men were angels, we'd have no need of government, and the world would be you know the bowers of paradise would be reconstituted, and so forth and so on. As long as that doesn't happen, there will always be imperfections in the system. Now, I, I want to make a couple of points. First of all, the United States has never had a gold standard. It had a bimetallic standard, yes, which is very different and kind of unique. Um, bimetallism means that both gold and silver. Uh, become, you know, our, our legal tender. And the advantage of that is that ordinary schmooze maybe can't afford, as gold. you say, lots of, you know, to, to store lots of gold. You, most people can afford silver. Yeah, right? And, and, that, and that also confers a certain stability in your assets. So if, you, if you're one of these people who has, you know, $10,000 in savings or whatever, you know, or, and, and, and maybe, you know, at, at any given time, $500 to $1,000 in your, in, your, in your checking account, you can easily see how you know that could be taken care of with with a silver and perhaps you know minimally a nickel and you know nickel and copper coinage, but but silver primarily, and this is how it was carried out. Now the disadvantage of bimetallism, that that the true gold bugs love to point out, is that the relative value of gold and silver, although it was fixed at six, I think sixteen to one in the Constitution, um, is unfortunately going to going to fluctuate because. Um, the amounts that are available based on the productivity of existing mines and so forth are, are not always going to maintain the same proportionality. Yeah. So that, that can be dif- difficult, and this is something that would, would probably need to be studied. But having a mi- bimetallic standard, I think, uh, is the closest thing we've come to so far to solving that problem. Um, aside from the United States, uh, most other countries back in the day when gold and silver were king were either a gold standard, if they were richer countries like France or, or the UK or something like that, or poorer countries. Uh, China, uh, under the Qing dynasty, Mexico, and the Philippines were good examples of countries that had a pure, more or less pure silver uh, standard coinage because there simply wasn't enough capital to justify you know, having a gold standard in those countries. But either yeah. way, the principle is the same, and the chief benefit of having a press, I mean, there are a number of different things that we enumerated the last time, reasons for using gold, and one could say the same for, for silver. They're both scarce, they're both durable, so forth and so on. But the, the number one thing that recommends them as money is the fact that they're scarce. That's the most important thing, above divisibility and portability and all the rest of it, is scarcity because scarcity denies the government and the banking system, the ability to artificially manipulate the money supply. Even if the government benefit. has all the gold? Well, that would have to be remedied, wouldn't it? I mean, the government, <laughs> of course, obviously seized all of the gold from yeah. private ownership back in the 1930s under the Roosevelt administration, mm-hmm. one of the greatest acts of tyranny ever perpetrated by the American executive. Uh, and that, wasn't, that was partly rectified um, in, I believe, 1970, 1975, when I was still a boy. I remember clearly that uh, that they, the it was announced that Americans could once again purchase gold. Now, for a long time thereafter, for the next 20 years or so, you could go to any bank in the United States and you could purchase uh, gold and silver coins 
Yeah, that was one of the things banks typically yeah. did. That is no longer the case. Uh, banks no longer just to, 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 if you want to buy gold and silver today, you pretty much have to go to a dealer or yeah. order it online or something like that. But banks no longer provide that service. I think because um, there's there's an effort afoot to to kind of in, instill in people's minds the idea. Well, this is just you know these are just dumb metals. There's no real use here. You got to get with the times, and the times means you know credit cards, debit cards. Uh, PayPal, computer, all this stuff, the, all, yeah. all these new modern, old, not, not, none of which are necessarily bad per se, but but the overall tendency is the whole idea is to is to is to sort of divorce people once and for all from this that this this antiquated idea, allegedly antiquated idea that somehow money needs to be grounded in something tangible like yeah. gold and silver. Well, yeah, that's a good point you bring up because one of the things I want to touch on is is crypto because that's another one that's mm. floating around but this it it does seem antiquated it seems like society is moving in a direction where this is probably the last thing that's that's going to happen and i don't know you know i see the commercials or the dealers you know like whatever shows especially on further right-leaning shows birch gold and whatever there are lots of uh people pushing gold and and silver and whatnot this does uh does a bimetal money system have a chance well, I mean, first of all, you need to remember that, th- that there are actually three types of money. Well, four now. I mean, if you include all these these weird exotic, you know, you mentioned cryptocurrency, which isn't really money fully. But but anyway, the, the traditional three types of money are commodity money, which usually means gold and or silver, although there, there have been other forms historically, copper, uh, even cigarettes during World War II were used as, 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 as money. Especially in Germany, right? Yeah, sure. So, so commodity money and before that, you know, in ancient times, grain uh, was also money, which is why gold is reckoned in terms of grains. That's where that term comes from. But mm. if you go way, way back to the Bronze Age, particularly, uh, and the early Iron Age, before coins were invented, uh, grains were used. So, so, so that's the first type of money. The second type we've been discussing here, which is fiat money, money that can be created that's not uh, tied to anything else. But, but there's, there, there's, a, there's sort of a compromise type of money. And uh, that's called fiduciary money. Now, fiduciary money is money that is based on some sort of tangible commodity, usually gold and silver. And this is what makes it practical to actually have a money system because people who are, are opposed to gold and silver will always invoke images of, well, you know, you have to just carry around heavy sacks of gold and silver everywhere you go and how impractical is that? Well, nobody ever did that. Obviously, people did carry, just like we carry coins and, and so forth in our pocket. But what, what, what we had before was, you know, most people would put their money with a bank and they would have banknotes, paper money. Yeah, but yeah. that paper money was not had no value per se. It had value as a claim against actual yeah. assets. And they could go okay. in and get their little sure. So gold that was very and, you, and there were checks and drafts and all these other things, all of which are forms of fiduciary money. But you know they ultimately represented tangible assets in somebody's account in some bank vault somewhere in the world, and that's the difference. So obviously, banks. You know, even in the golden days of, of you know fiduciary money, they 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 could practice fraud. There were banks, the so-called wildcat banks, and so forth, that would typically would uh, take your money and they would issue notes to you and to three other people based on the same the, the same claim of assets, and then they would eventually go insolvent and 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 so forth. So, so you know, we've never had a perfect banking system, right? And, and moving forward towards a solution, I would think would require framing wise laws that would prevent banks from doing that, that would make it clear that, I mean, really, we have to have two things. We have to have some sort of asset-based money system, and gold, a, a bimetallic system seems to be the best thing, mm-hmm. coupled with 
fiduciary money, but also a legal requirement of full reserve banking as far as you know, the deposit function is concerned. What, what's we the had those three now? things. Is it you know, a 10% or 5%? Well, it, 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 it changes. I mean, one, of the, one of the tools that the Federal Reserve uses is it can actually adjust uh, the so-called le- legal you know, reserve rate that, that, that mm. member banks can have. And if it wants to increase the money supply, it can actually lower that reserve requirement. Uh, so if it lowers the reserve requirement, it's less than ten percent now. I don't know exactly what it is at the moment. What, what reserves you know? does it have if it's if, if it's completely untethered from from precious metals? What what's the reserves in more more paper money? If well, it's Federal, already printing it at will. It's interesting. The Federal Reserve, the, the the New York Federal Reserve branch, has a massive amount of gold, and of course, there's another big stash of gold at Fort Knox mm-hmm. that's supposedly government assets that back up, at least in part all of our government debt that we have out there. But no one actually knows <laughs> how much is in Fort Knox. And I don't believe anyone knows, except maybe a few inside accountants or that, how much gold is actually stored in the vaults at the New York Federal Reserve System. Clearly, it's far less than is justified by all the money out, all of the U.S. dollars and dollar-denominated assets that are floating around out there. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. But no one really knows. And this is one of the scary problems when we talk about the solution to this particular issue, which is the, our chronic inflationary financial regime, uh, is how do you get away from it? Because inflation is a little bit like a drug um, if you get used to it or, or like an addiction to alcohol or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You, you, after a while, you need that fix or you need that high in order to, you think, to continue to function, right? And when you take that away, uh, the withdrawal, withdrawal symptoms can be really, really acute, even yeah. life-threatening. Yeah, right? so... What would uh, that look? What would an uh, inflation withdrawal look on the United States? Okay, well, before I answer that question, I want to point something out. And that is when we say solution, something that that, that, that word conjures in many people's minds is silver bullet. You know, how can we solve this thing okay. quickly and efficiently? Are you saying there's no silver bullet, Steve? That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, there's a, there's a meme on Facebook that's been going around for a while, and I, I, f- I forget the exact wording, but it shows two— <sighs> Why did we do this episode? Well, no, it, shines, <laughs> it shows two lines of people. One is very, very short, and one is very, very long. And the long line is going up to a, a desk where a person is—it says, um, reassuring lies or something like that. And the other one, which has like two people in front of it, says truth. hard truths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so we're going to traffic today in hard truths. Well, that's what we do right. here at the JBS, and, and that's mm. what's so hard about for a lot of activists is that we have never, ever presented a solution that is going to be an overnight solution or a silver bullet where like, okay, you know, uh, this is it. You know, uh, you do this and you call your representative and we do this and everything's fine. Uh, and that's clearly this is in line with that. So we have no silver bullet. We have a, a hard truth. Uh, okay, that, well, here's that would hard, require a withdrawal period that would be painful. Okay, well, here's hard truth number one. Hard truth number one is no matter which road we choose, the outcome is going to be unpleasant. The question is which one will lead to more unpleasantry. So if we continue <laughs> down the road to inflation, which we've been doing for the better part of 100 years now. I mean, technically, it didn't start when the Federal Reserve was created. It really started in the 1930s when we, when we went off the gold standard, and it accelerated in the 1970s when Nixon closed the gold window. So, so it's not been, you know, but it's been quite a, several generations now that we've been pyramiding dollars and creating this massive, unjustifiably, you know, immense supply of dollars worldwide. You know, obviously, the, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. So it's not just the United States. It's the entire rest of the world that depends on U.S. dollars, you know, for, the, for, their, for their financial system. Okay, so if we continue 
on the path we're on now. Sooner or later, and no one can say exactly when. It could be sooner if our illusion is punctured by some sort of black swan event like another pandemic or a world war or something like this. Or an alien invasion. Perhaps, <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, I mean, usually if you look at the history of hyperinflation, um, you know, truly ruinous hyperinflation, such as the Ger what, you know, Germany experienced after the end of World War II, um, or Japan after World, or after World War I, excuse me, in Germany's case, Japan after World War II and so forth, you, you see that oftentimes it's some really awful critical event. Argentina, when I lived in Argentina as a teenager from 79 to 80, they had merely high inflation. The hyperinflation kicked in after they lost the Falklands War in yeah. 1982 and, the, and, and um, got rid of the military junta and tried to go back to a, a more or less democratic government. And their first president, Alfonsín, didn't know what to do. And within you know, a couple months, their inflation rate was at many thousands of percent and everyone's savings was wiped out. That's what I'm talking about. So that will happen eventually to us. Now, because we have the world's reserve currency, we can get away with stuff that the Argentinas and the Zimbabwe's and the Sri Lankas of the world can't get away with with their respective currencies. Now, Namely, isn't that in jeopardy, though, that status? Well, it is. But my point is that, that those countries, when they start printing too much money, you know, the boom comes down pretty quickly. I mean, they mm -hmm. pay the price fairly quickly. So they have to, to take heed. They have to. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, our Argentina's government has proved as profligate as our own. But we have this wonderful mechanism where we can export a lot of the a lot of this froth, this inflationary froth, to other countries and spread the misery around. Worldwide. They buy our debt, right? Oh, sure, sure. So, so we do enjoy a bit of a stopgap thanks to this this this. You know, we we. I mean, in this sense, the dollar seems to defy all of the rules of economics at times, and this is the reason. But that won't persist last forever. I mean, right now there's an effort afoot among the likes of China and Russia and other countries, even Saudi Arabia, to move, um, away. To move away from the dollar as the sole uh, default currency. And there are any number of other directions that events could change. But the bottom line is this. Sooner or later, we're going to reach what the Austrian economists call the crack-up boom. And when that happens, when all that ex those excess dollars come flooding home to the United States because internationally confidence is lost in the dollar or for some reason like this, then we're going to experience hyperinflation and the complete destruction of our own economy. Uh, savings will be wiped out almost overnight, as happened in, in, in Weimar, Germany, um, and, uh, except it will happen on a much larger scale. And beyond that lies the abyss. We don't really know how Americans will respond. Okay? That's one possible consequence. And I would argue that is by far the worst outcome. And all we have to do to guarantee that outcome is to continue on the present course. Okay. Do you have a, is there a timeline or a No, rank? there's no people. People have been, you know, uh, Peter Schiff has, has been right and wrong. He's one of the, he's one of the most prominent forecasters and mm. people that, that understand this. You know, he correctly forecast the 2008-2009 yeah. implosion. But then he kind of said, well, there's going to be something else within five to seven years. Well, it, it hasn't happened yet. And he's admitted since that, well, he got the timing wrong. It's, it's, it, you know, economic is, events are notoriously difficult to time. Well, that's what I noticed because you, you had know. mentioned Semiholtz and, you know, you're, you gave me that book and I've read mm -hmm. it. And, and he wrote that during the Carter years. Sure. And he's saying almost exactly what you're saying. Like, this is if we continue this, this is where it's going. Well, it's been 50 years. It has been a long time. And this is, this is a problem. Now, of course, we've had, we've had events like the Great Recession that have you know, punctured the illusion temporarily. And I would submit that you know, the economy's never really returned to the pre-1929 
you know, to the go-go days of the 1980s and 1990s, which, again, I remember very well, you know, when the stock market seemed to defy gravity. Of course, all that was inflationary as well. I mean, because in good times, when the economy, yeah. when confidence is more or less maintained under an inflationary system, what happens is all that excess money pumps up the value of assets yeah. and you know, investment-grade assets and more or less stays there. And so the stocks and bonds and everything goes up and everybody makes money. Even, you know, the, your, ordinary, your taxi drivers buying stocks and recommending ah, stocks. Yeah. And everybody's happy. Everyone's getting McMansions. Right. And, and that's all inflationary, too. People tend to think that inflation is only when the price of eggs and meat starts ri- or gasoline, you know, start rising at the pump. But that's what happens when, you know, when the system starts to break down. Yeah. Okay. And now... You know, I mean, we've only had one true hyperinflationary episode in the history of the United States so far, and that was the during great. and after the Revolutionary War, a time of great crisis yeah. when we were forced, the, you know, the Continental Congress was forced to print money, true fiat money. Yeah, that they, great Continental Bucks, right? Right, to finance the war, and it pretty much bankrupted everybody. By the end of the war, everybody was in debt, uh, and Americans remained in debt. Most people were in debt until, you know, at least 1800 or thereabouts. It was, they took a long time to pay things yeah. off. So what's the other possible solution? What's the other way? All right, so the first one, let's reiterate. If if we continue Mm. doing what we're doing, all we have to do, it'll all collapse eventually. Going back to that, though, you had mentioned those rival countries that Mm. buy our debt. And I was just wondering, these are not nations that like us. What does it take for them to just stop buying our debt, stop acknowledging whatever that means, us as as the reserve currency? Is that a real prospect? Is that possible? Well, it's already starting in a, to a limited degree. I mean, China and Russia, China's already begun purchasing uh, oil from Russia and paying with renminbi, with, with, with Chinese currency. Uh, the Chinese for some time have been agitating for making the Chinese yuan or renminbi yeah. another alternative you know, global reserve currency. The Europeans, our friends, our buddies in the, in, in the EU, you know, so there, there, there's some sentiment there that perhaps the euro uh, ought to be on an equal footing with the, with the dollar as well. Mm. So far, it hasn't happened. And primarily, I think it's because of systemic inertia. People are kind of happy with the way system works, more or less. Uh, all the world's wealthy elite, um, who are generally apolitical, I should point out. This is, this is a characteristic of people who are super rich, and particularly finan- financiers and bankers. They tend not to get swept away by partisan politics or, 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 or political tribalism. They just want to make money. And if money means you know, accumulating U.S. dollars, they really don't care too mm. much if the U.S. maybe is pursuing policies in the Middle East that they disagree with or whatever. Because yeah, yeah. you know, I guarantee you all the, the wealthy Gulf Arabs and so forth, they all have their assets and dollars too. Yeah. And for the moment, they're all happy with it. What it would take for that to change, again, it's, it's impossible to forecast that. But as surely as we're sitting here having this conversation right now, it will come to pass someday. If we we are not immune from the same you know, laws that have brought down the Argentinas and the Germanys of the past. Okay. Wow. Okay. So now you were saying the, the less painful way and the way that will lead uh, to a brighter future, but nonetheless includes a dark valley is? Mm. Okay. Well, the less painful way is we ourselves put an end to the fiat money system. Now, if we did it overnight, the political, social, and economic dislocation would probably be so great it would probably provoke a revolution or something like that. So, so that's Probably not, <laughs> not the, best the wisest course to follow. Now, right, right now, there's a chap down in Argentina who may well get elected next year. His name is Javier Millet, and uh, he is um, 
is basically he's a Rothbardian or an Austrian economist, mm-hmm. and he's very he very much understands how the monetary system works, and he's been promising Argentines that he'll get rid of inflation. But he's saying if if, if, if we do this, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a year or two. And he points to a time back about 30 years ago when Argentina briefly managed to name inflation. And that was preceded by a rather significant recessionary period. Okay, so that is going to be inevitable, just as uh, the addict who was taken off of, you know, denied his heroin fix or whatever for a period of time is going to suffer withdrawal symptoms. Okay, I mean, I mean the analogy is, it, it is somewhat trite, but it really is true. If he continues taking heroin, it's going to kill him eventually. Okay. Yeah. Every, every every heroin addict, his brain knows that. Okay, that this is going. To, there's only one way that this addiction leads. Okay, he's not going to end up being a 75 year old heroin addict. Okay, but on the other hand, every time he tries to quit, he realizes, wow, this is a painful course too. Okay, so this is hard truth number two. We can't get out of this fix without paying a price. Okay, now that price will probably also involves some sort of very significant economic and financial contraction uh, and a lot of dislocation, a lot of chaos, and of course the usual voices clamoring to, you know, to, to go it. back to the Fix old it. ways and so forth and so on. So it would require a, a considerable amount of political and societal will that will only be begotten of an increased level of understanding of the mess we're in and how we go about fixing it. Now, the way we fix it in short, is by reinstating some sort of a precious metal standard. Now, in practice, how do we do that and still somehow try to honor all of the commitments that are out there? We can. We can't, can we? I don't know. That was going to be my next, my follow-up question. I don't know. We got a lot of goodies flowing around, a lot of programs, and generations of Americans have gotten used to these, uh, I don't know if they're new deals, if that's when they start or whatever, but now we've, there's not, there's no one alive I well, I should who, think, who I should think that it could be done over a period of, say, 10 years and something like that. You know, basically begin calling in, you know, federal debt uh, and, you know, ch- changing the structure of the debt uh, and this kind of thing. We have a lot of gold. Yeah. And we can get a lot more. There's plenty of gold in the earth and, and you know, demand for gold and silver. Is that all that would rise. take? What about but, no changes to the economy? Do we need well, to there produce would be. more? Obviously, there would be. And, and, you know, I mean, but, but you know, to pass a law saying, okay, we're going to require banks to be full reserve. I mean, if you did it today, every bank in the country would go bankrupt overnight. So you, there you have to that. be some sort of a transition period. And frankly, it's beyond my pay grade to understand what that might be. But there are a lot of very smart economists yeah. who could probably figure out, well, you know, you might need a 10-year or tw- you know, 20-year period to phase that back in or something like that. It certainly wouldn't be an easy fix. And it might mean 10 or 20 lean years, yeah. relatively lean, lean well, years. Well, how is that possible when you have shifting uh, political winds every four, every eight years, well, every yeah, two no, years? Again, that, that it would require a level of, of education like many of the other solutions that we advocate here, political as well as, as economic, you know, frankly, we're not there yet as a society. We're not quite ready. Now, interestingly, in Argentina, people there have suffered so long from inflation, from, from you know, that they may well be ready finally. And maybe, you know, we will have maybe to that's experience. Where... Maybe that's what it'll take for us as well. But there's going to be no, I mean, the piper will have to be paid sooner or later. There's going to be no way to, you know, to avoid this. Okay. Will it? What about crypto? Is there a future? Because as you and I know, some of the stuff we cover at here at the New American is so beyond, and the things that we learn 
is that most, you know, the average person does not know, for instance, the, the technological advances or capabilities out there. Is there a parallel to some sort of progress that has been or can be made regarding money that we haven't considered? And what is your take on crypto? It's decentralized. It is computer money, money of the prog- of the future. I guess it, you would not define it as money. What is your take on crypto? Well, first of all, again, crypto has limited uh, fungibility. Um, it's primarily an accounting system for storing assets. And its value right now resides primarily in the fact that it's very, very, very private. Government can't, it's very hard, not impossible, it's very, very difficult for governments to snoop around and see what you're holding in cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Now, some kind of the, the solution that some governments have embarked upon, China, for example, has, has been to make crypto illegal because, of course, crypto became the means for people living in China to transfer money out of China. And when the government figured that, okay, we're going to make it illegal, and if you, you get caught you know, uh, using cryptocurrency, we'll put you in prison and so forth and so on. So cryptocurrency, within the constraints of the system we have right now, where monetary privacy is at a premium and where Swiss, things like Swiss bank accounts and many other places, you know, the Virgin Islands and Andorra and these other so-called uh, tax havens and places with, you know, with bank secrecy are rapidly being compromised. Um, I think the primary value and the reason that cryptocurrency has gone up so much is that people have rushed to use it as a place to hide their assets, to put their assets somewhere where, where the greedy, grasping hand of government can't 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 let well that's not likely to change so well but the point is though if we were to what i'm getting at is if if we were to somehow get to the point where we're ready to 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 transition back into an actual uh, sane money system as we described at the outset of this discussion i suspect that cryptocurrency would no longer have the value that it has now if people knew that they could once again put their money in banks and other such Mm. places that it would be there that it would be you know, more or less safe and secure. Um, and if government were restricted from just arbitrarily going in and confiscating people's wealth yeah. at whim, um, you know, under those circumstances, I doubt that cryptocurrencies and all of their complexity and admitted sketchiness. I mean, not all cryptocurrencies are created equal. You know, for every Ethereum, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, there are 10 cryptocurrencies that have been flashes in the pan. Yeah. So, you know, cryptocurrencies aren't, 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 you know, the, the panacea that they've necessarily been portrayed as being. Some of them, you know, have, you know, Bitcoin in particular and Ethereum and some others have, you know, have done all right. Yeah. But uh, but a number of them have not. And then there are a number of different varieties of cryptocurrencies, including cryptocurrencies that are allegedly backed by some sort of yeah. assets, you know. Well, this FTX so, deal, I take it, hasn't... Uh hasn't helped to be sure yeah i mean that, that that's that's sort of like a like an atomic explosion in the middle of again this this gravity defying fi- you know new financial sector that seemed to you be immune to all the usual laws of, of economics and suddenly now reality is coming home so i don't know but uh you know personally again i i don't think in in, in an honest monetary system in a sound monetary system i'm not sure that cryptocurrency would have such a, I mean, it might still have a role to play. I don't know enough about it to be yeah. able to say, but I don't think it would have the, you know, the, the, the profile that it has now because confidence in the banking system would be restored. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's so what it takes. We need to have an informed populace. And that's what we've always been working at here. Like you said, we're not there. Whichever way we go, we obviously want to take the less painful position, but. You know, both ways would be painful. 
both with the really it'd be years and years of you know contraction and people but, may lose their savings you know you know you, home you, prices you, you can't under our legal system you can't legally compel the heroin addict or the alcoholic to get treatment. Yeah. You can't drag them away in chains and say, okay, now we're going de- we to detox you. You've got no choice. What has to happen is that person needs to hit rock bottom and realize no matter what, I'm going to go check myself into a clinic. If they have to put me in restraints or whatever, I'm going to go through it. I know it's going to be you know, sheer, sheer hell you yeah, know, yeah. To, to get through it, but I'm going to do it because there's nowhere to go but up. Yeah. And it may well be that we as a society might have to reach that point as Argentina has done and, and other countries have, have done. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would hope not. I would like to think that the, Ameri- you know, the, the collective character of the American people is better than that. Yeah. But the jury is still out. We'll, we'll just have to see. But, you know, a, a, a real problem that we have with this particular issue that is not so much the case with, say, I don't know, abortion or gun rights or some of the other issues that we like to talk about is it's hard to talk about. It's not too hard to understand the Second Amendment yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the issues involving abortion. Finance and money is pretty complex. I mean, at, at root, it's actually quite simple. The principles are simple, but the language deployed by bankers and financiers yeah. and economists is so deliberately you know, complex and confusing um, that well, people, people are, are scared away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you talk about fractional reserve. It's like I had to read an entire book to realize what that means. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think I do more reading than the, than the average person. So, well, and they can't, they can't just say, for example, creating more money or pumping more money into the supply. They call it injecting liquidity. <laughs> That's literally the term they use. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, people look at that and, 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 and they're immediately taken about, well, I, that, that sounds like really technical stuff, you know, kind of like, yeah. uh, you know, mathematical physics. There's no way I can understand no. that without, you know, lots of years in graduate school and a PhD and all this type of thing. And, and that's not really true. You know, unlike mathematical physics and some of the more abstruse sciences, um, it is possible for the layman to develop a very sound understanding of money and banking and the, and the principles of, of, of economics. What's happened is that the economists themselves, at least those who are in the pay of the state, in the tradition of John Maynard Keynes and many others, have created this unnecessarily complex um, vocabulary with the express purpose of excluding the unwashed masses from their arcana. Yeah. Because they know, as Keynes once admitted, you know, these are very, very few people really understand what inflation is. If they did understand, they would be very upset. And this is true of so many things that appertain to, to economics and banking. Yeah. Is people would be, the pitchforks and torches would be out in a hurry if people understood what was being said. But as George Orwell observed a long time ago, you know, political language is always inherently deceptive. Right. Because where politics and, and its handmaiden economics are concerned, um, you know, you don't want to tell the truth lest the people actually figure out. So you, so you have to be able to first wade through all the verbiage and, fi- you know, and be able to separate fact from fiction. And to do that, you have to find the right people. You have to know about, oh, I don't know, a, a Murray Rothbard or, or Ludwig von Mises or somebody, you know, people who are actually willing to tell the truth. Um, as opposed to trying to read, I, I mean, I defy anyone right. listening to the show to try to read Keynes. Well, that's the reason you know. we do this show, and we do so many other episodes, on, and we spend 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes I get grief for that, believe it or not, mm. that we spend an hour to 45 minutes to try to explain something that, you know, people have spent years writing and trying to explain. We have an entire populace who doesn't grasp this, and the, the price of that is so is so heavy that to spend 45 minutes to an hour, uh, I would think you would just lap it up. 
right? Be like, oh my God, you mean I can? So, I mean, you mentioned uh, Rothbard and 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 Luke, did you m mention Mises? Mises. Von Mises, yes. Von Mises mm -hmm. and and whatnot. So maybe if you can't read, you know, you don't have time to read them and uh, whatnot. You get at least watch this episode, right? And and get some some idea. And that's why we we also create these action projects. I know you know we're out there, we're pedaling, we're hawking uh, JBS, but. This is the reason why we do what we do, is it not? Is well, it, it not is. to create understanding? But, you know, here's the thing, too. You don't need to read The Theory of Money and Credit or Man, Economy, and State, although I strongly recommend them if you have the time and the inclination to do so. But if, if you don't, you know, I mean, people instinctively, if they, if they don't listen to all of the, the nonsense, all the verbiage, all the persiflage that's always being emitted by the politicians yeah. and their, you know, their myrmidons in the media and in academia and the economists and all that crowd. Common sense usually is correct. Now, something that our parents all told us when we were little children was, hey, what do you think? Money, money doesn't money grow on trees. trees. Don't you know that? Money doesn't grow on trees. The basic premise of fiat money is, it's that, even easier than is that. that actually money does grow on trees, right? All you have to do is print it. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, there was a, there was a popular book called Jason and the Money Tree that I read as a boy. And it's about a boy who actually gets a, a little tree that instead of producing leaves, yeah, produces yeah. dollar bills. And so for a while, he becomes very, very rich. I forget how it ends. But, but, the, but, but Jason and the Money Tree was you know, a, a not-so-subtle attempt by some children's writer a long time ago yeah. to point up this very simple truth. is You know, money doesn't grow on trees. There's something else involved. That's very simple and commonsensical. And you don't need to know about injecting liquidity or what open market mm. operations are. Any of this other stuff, that's what it boils down to. Yes. You know, that's that, and that, that, that's an eternal truth. Right. It's one of those copybook headings that, that, that Kipling wrote about a long time ago. You know, and, and, and if we just had a return to common sense to start with, we wouldn't need to have PhDs in Austrian economics to understand that. Yeah. Steve, thank you so much. And this is why we are going to have you on our Speakers Bureau to discuss money. <laughs> just putting that out there. Thank you so okay. much for your time. We appreciate you. Thank you. JBS founder Robert Welch created an organization dedicated to education. He used to say, education is our total strategy and truth our only weapon. Inflation is another example of how, about of how a false narrative largely believed by the public has eroded our savings, our standard of living, and even our liberties. People in desperate measures give up quite a bit for food insecurity. But the worst part about it, like with most consequences of government involvement, is that inflation does not need to happen, meaning that a rise in prices of this magnitude is completely preventable. So we urge you to share this episode. And the information in it, like we just talked, and Steve's story in the Great Reset Collector's Edition to help create an understanding of what is happening here when it comes to our corrupt money system. Like we've been saying, this is the beginning of how to restore sound money. We ask you to visit the JBS and the Fed Action Project, where we truthfully discuss the money problem and how to restore sound money. I'm going to say it again. We need sound money. The future of this country depends on it. You heard, Steve. But to get there, we need to help as many Americans as possible understand the problem. And lastly, if you haven't already, consider joining the John Birch Society. We'll get you plugged in right where you are so you can begin helping us in our epic undertaking to restore this wonderful nation. Check out the links in the description to help you get started. And until next time, remember that the answer to inflation is freedom. 
as it is with every other societal problem.